0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Tim and I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. I got good news for us this morning. We're talking about Jesus and politics. I think I just felt our collective anxiety even spread out across our city rise by about four or five notches. Maybe you shifted in your seat a little bit, got a little bit uncomfortable. I don't want you to worry. I fully intend on offending every single one of us this morning. So if you have any angry comments that you want to make back based on what I'm saying in this sermon, go ahead and write down my email. It's Simpson at citizenscharlotte.com. I would love to hear any feedback that you have. Grab a Bible, go Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, we're going to look at the first 14 verses. But before we get there, let me set us up. So over the past few weeks, as I've been getting ready for this sermon, I've been having lots of different conversations, both with people inside and outside of our church. And I would say something like, hey, I'm about to preach on politics. I got a sermon on politics coming up. And I loved it because overwhelmingly, the vast majority of responses right away, whenever I say, hey, I'm preaching on politics, would be something along the lines of, whew, or oh man, or well, good luck with that. Let me ask us a question. Why is that? When I say that we're talking about what the Bible has to say about politics this morning, why do our hearts get just a little bit tighter? Why do we get a little bit more uncomfortable? Why as a preacher, am I more afraid to preach about politics than I am to tell you that the Bible says you're a sinner separated from God and deserving of his wrath and punishment? Why has politics in our country become such an entrenching and private and anxiety-ridden and identity-determining thing? I've been so helped in thinking about this sermon by a writer named David Zoll. David wrote a fantastic book I would highly recommend to all of you. It's called Seculosity. Seculosity, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. And whole argument in the book is that as God has been pushed more and more out of our society collectively and our lives individually, that our need for identity producing worship, that means giving our lives away to something such that in return, we get meaning and value and purpose and identity. Our need for identity producing worship has to then go to other things. So, in the book, he talks about all of the things we now worship instead of God in order to gain identity things like romance, marriage, food, our kids, etc. And the number one thing that Zal argues in the book that has taken the place of God and religion for where we find meaning and identity and worth and value is politics. He says it this way If once upon a time we looked to politics primarily for governance, we now look to it for belonging righteousness, meaning, and deliverance. In other words, all the things for which we used to rely on religion. Zal goes on to talk about how studies and statistics back up the fact that we now identify and build our lives upon our political leanings or opinions. And so the few that he says is that first, we're less likely today than ever before in our country's history to have friends who vote differently than us. He also continues, in one study last year, over 40% of American parents said they would have a problem if their kid married someone of a different political party than them. Americans are more likely to choose their religious identity based on their political affiliation, meaning more and more people's uh, political convictions shape their religious beliefs rather than the other way around. And Zal goes on to explain why he thinks this is. Why he thinks politics has risen to such an identity producing thing in our culture. He writes, both religion and politics traffic in all encompassing narratives. Both attempt to make sense of, well, everything, not just the way things are, but the way things should be the way we are and should be the whys and the wherefores and the so what's politics has become our all encompassing narrative. And shared stories like this not only divide us from those who think differently than us, but they also bind us more closely together to those who view the world through the same lens as well. I mean, think about Christian community for a second, right? The great web of Christian brothers and sisters is the narrative we all believe and build our lives around. That Jesus is king who has made a way for sinners to be reunited to God. And when we hold that narrative more and more tightly, we learn to hold one another more and more tightly. When we commit to these shared beliefs, to this way of living and being in the world, we have the promise of being welcomed into the family of God. We have found our people. Is the same not promised us, albeit falsely, in politics? It's an identity marker and a community making system. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Oh him. I would never vote for him. He's not on my side. She's not on my team. They are one of those folks. One of those people. What happens is when team dynamics are at play, those who are accepted the most who are held up and revered and invited more and more into this community of belonging are those who don't just have the right opinions or beliefs, but those who hold those beliefs most strongly. You get rewarded by being the most hardcore, the most purely devoted to the cause, which is why you have things like virtue signaling, where everyone feels the need to make sure they shout their opinions as loud as possible through as many Instagram posts as possible so that you know, I'm not like those people. I am not one of them. I'm on the right team. Look, I also hate the same things you do. I also love the same things you do, which is really underneath the surface, us just saying, please don't hate me. Please welcome me. Please love me. Don't call me something bad. I promise that I'm on your side too. If I can quote Zal one more time, he writes, at the end of the day, all our signals serve the same purpose, to convince others in ourselves that we are good, right enough, that we belong and are worthy of acceptance. How unfortunate then that as a rule, virtue signaling backfires, not merely because the threshold of enough does not exist, but because the more aggressive our signals, the less convincing we render them. What comes across instead is the extent of our insecurity which don't get on your high horse just yet because you can be guilty of this both by posting and talking and yelling and shouting all of the time, but also by feeling the need to point out how you don't post and talk and shout all of the time because you're so bipartisan and enlightened and not like everyone else who's freaking out. We're all at fault. We are all at fault. So what we need as we consider Jeremiah 29, as we consider Jesus and politics this morning, what we need is a better way. What we need is a faithful vision from the scriptures, our ultimate authority of what it looks like to engage in the civility of our time to step into politics as Christians without losing our minds, our faith, or our witness. So let's look at Jeremiah 29 together. We're going to start in verse one. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon." So in Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah is writing to God's people, the Israelites, who are in exile, living under the rule and reign of Babylon. And an exile is is simply a person who lives in a place, but doesn't truly belong or fit in in that place. And obviously, this is not a great situation for the people of God see, they have rebelled against God. They worshiped false gods. They rebelled and sinned. And so as punishment, they're taken out of their home, their promised land, and they're put into this new place where they're now forced to follow the customs and regulations and rules of this foreign nation. So the Israelites are obviously not happy. There's deep distress and grumbling and anxiety and anger and, and all of that. And so in response to try to appease the people, false prophets have risen up. And basically to to help the Israelites feel better, they keep telling them, hey, don't worry about the exile. It's going to be over soon. God's about to show up. Don't worry about it. All of this is going to be over in the blink of an eye. You're going to be taken back out of Babylon into your homeland. Don't worry about your exile. Don't worry about your suffering. This is all going to be over soon. Just keep doing you ride it out. Forget about what the Babylonians are doing. Just grin and bear it until God shows up. So God sends Jeremiah in to tell the people, basically, hey, these guys are all liars. They don't speak for God. They're false prophets. And by the way, you're going to be in exile for a little while. Jeremiah is not the guy you invite to the party. It's simple as that. He shows up and says, hey, settle in, settle in. You're going to be doing this for a minute. Look what he says in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse five, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. God tells his people, build some houses and grow some food. These are not short term activities. This is going to take some time. I know this is not your home. I know that you're not where you want to be. I know that you're in exile, but settle in just a little bit. I don't know if you've ever uh, tried to build a house or plant a garden, but, but that takes time. A few weeks into being up here in Charlotte, Lindsay and our friend Ellen uh, kind of made this little garden plot in our backyard. And I was so excited when I came home. There was a total surprise. And they said, hey, we're going to grow some things like peppers and tomatoes and all the things you grow in a backyard garden. And I was like, sweet like fresh grown vegetables right in my backyard. Like, I, I love this. Let's, let's, let's do it, right? Like in a week, I can go out there. I can get some vegetables, no time at all. It's going to be awesome. Found out it takes much longer than that to grow what they were trying to grow. Nonetheless, they also killed everything, but that's the, beside the point. It's not the goal of that illustration. These activities are going to take some time. They're not home. They're called to plant roots and settle in and make this home for however long they are there. Jeremiah keeps going. Verse six, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Again, have a long term view. Have some kids play the long game. More and more generations continue to grow as a people. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord. On its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Notice that phrase, seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. It's this idea that we see all throughout the Old Testament. It's often translated as peace, but it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. What shalom means is the presence of wholeness, it means flourishing rightness, peace, everything being exactly as it was designed and created to be. And God says to his people, even though you're in exile, even though this is not your ultimate home, seek its good. Seek its welfare. Seek its flourishing. Seek its shalom. Work towards it, not against it. Pray for it, not against it. If it flourishes while you're here, you flourish too. This is the call of the Israelites in their exile in Babylon, that this is not their ultimate home. But while they're here, they're called to seek the good. Now, let me show you what this means for us as Christians in America in 2020. If you're a Christian, you have dual citizenship. You have dual citizenship. What that means is that you're a citizen of this world. That comes with obligations and responsibilities, ownership you are called to as you work towards its flourishing, and your primary citizenship is not here, but in heaven. You are first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God. So even though this is where we inhabit right now, this is not your forever home. You are in exile. This is not your permanent spot. You're an outsider living in a place where you do not belong. You do not belong to the place where you currently inhabit. You have dual citizenship. In Jeremiah 29, we see that the call of an exile is to invest yourself deeply into the people and systems and structures where you find yourself right now to make it more reflective of the kingdom of God and to lead more towards shalom towards flourishing, towards wholeness, towards the common good. This is what it means to live as exiles, right? To seek the good of the place where you currently are while recognizing that it is not your home. Okay. But what does this have to do with politics In our society today, like it or not a central mechanism for achieving human flourishing and the common good, a central mechanism for going towards Shalom is politics. Now, when I say politics, I don't mean partisan campaigning and attack ads all over the television and the whole kind of sick, gross game of it all. I think it's pretty easy to argue that those don't contribute to the common good. Those don't contribute to human flourishing. But politics in reality is actually so much bigger and broader than those things. So the word politics in Greek, it actually translates to affairs of the cities. So when I say politics, what I mean is the organizing structure around how cities, states, and nations go about life together. So we mean by politics, politics are the organizing structure around how cities, states, and nations go about life together. Politics are how our collective lives get organized and structured laws. They get passed and enforced to a large degree through politics goods and resources get distributed through politics. Taxes get determined and collected through politics. People get access to the resources that they need, largely through politics. Listen, if criminal justice reform is going to happen, it's going to happen through politics. The police reform is going to happen or not happen. It's going to happen through politics. And some of you are like, I want less politics. I want the government to stay out of more. I think we will have more human good, more human flourishing. If politics goes away, that's fine. Do you know how you get there? through politics, through voting. So to care about the common good of our society and to not care about politics is a little bit of a non-starter. If our goal as followers of Jesus is to seek the welfare, the flourishing, the shalom of the city where we find ourselves, a pretty decent chunk of that is going to happen via politics. Now, I think what happens when it comes to all of this, as we think about politics and approaching politics as a Christian, there's two pretty distinct groups in our church. I would say for, for some of us, we, uh, just don't care or we struggle with, with desiring or the temptation not to care. So we, we shrug our shoulders, we disengage, we stay out of it. It's, it's not my problem. I just don't want to worry about it. I just want to stay away. It stresses me out. It's, it, it's anxiety producing. It's just too much. That's one group. I think there's a whole other group of us that care too much. We think our identity is wrapped up first and foremost in who we vote for or don't vote for. We build our life, our community, our opinions, and even our beliefs off of our political party. It's our primary allegiance. So what I want to do for a little bit is I want to talk to both groups. We're going to start with the group that says, I don't care. Tempted to not care, tempted to disengage. I think there's a couple of reasons why you can land there. For some of us, we take this very true, very biblical idea that this world is not our home that heaven is my home, that I'm just passing through, that I'm a a citizen of God's kingdom, a very biblical idea, and it outworks into our lives in a very unbiblical way. So what happens is we start thinking things like, well, the world is not my home, so I don't really care what happens. Or I'm I'm just passing through, so I'm going to do kingdom work and not busy myself with these temporal matters. We become cool and calm, disconnected, or even apathetic towards what's going on in the world right around us. As one of my former pastors used to say, we're too heavenly focused to be any earthly good. And yet we're called to acknowledge here that we're citizens of God's kingdom. Yes, absolutely true. And yet God gets our primary allegiance and devotion and attention. And part of how we live out our devotion to God is by building houses and planting gardens and seeking the common good. So both and. That's one reason why I think we're apathetic. We disengage, but, but there's a larger one. I think for a lot of us, we don't engage because we generally think the whole system is pretty broken, right? It's divisive, it's corrupt, it's broken. We feel like it's busted beyond repair and nothing I do and my vote, none of that is ever going to change any of that. And in many ways, you're probably right. There's a lot of brokenness and corruption and division in our political system. It seems like right now the whole thing is built off of being divisive. I don't think I need to convince anybody about that. Nobody's arguing that our political system isn't broken, including a lot of people who are currently a part of it. And I just want to add real quick here that uh, the majority, 90% of our elected officials in America are white. So for those of us who are white and feel like the system is rigged and broken, I just want you to take a second and imagine how minorities in our country feel, right? Who have dealt with years and years and years of oppression, at the hands of a broken system. I mean, I was so convicted of this recently, right? So I was having a a conversation with a friend of mine talking about how I was just growing frustrated and apathetic about this political season and just talking about why is everyone freaking out so much? And it just feels so divisive. Like, I just want to pull back and disengage and not listen to any of it and not worry about any of it and just kind of do the church thing and just do my thing. And, And my friend in the most loving way possible said this to me. He said, hey man, I'm with you. Like I think a lot of people are putting their hope in politics and that's ultimately a misplaced hope, right? They're worshiping candidates instead of Christ. But, but I just want to be real with you for a second. This is what he said to me. He said, you're a middle-class white dude who lives in a a pretty upper middle-class comfortable neighborhood in Southeast Charlotte. The worst that would probably happen to you after this election is some light discomfort, Like maybe depending on who gets elected, your medical premiums keep going up, or maybe your taxes go up a little bit at the most, some slight inconveniences. And so he said to me, he said, Hey, just to be straight up, you being nonchalant and apathetic about who's going to get elected is actually really unloving to those around you in a vulnerable position who entire lives can be changed based on who is in office. So he said, Hey, your ability to be apathetic is actually a sign of your privilege. Listen, apathy is not the way of Jesus. Is it overwhelming? Yes. Do people take all of this too far? Yes. We're going to talk about that in a second. Is there corruption and brokenness in our political system? Absolutely. But isn't entering what is broken with hope for redemption kind of what Christianity is all about? Right? Like Jesus is the one who steps into our brokenness. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't see our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion and our division and say, you know what? Too much, too much. I'm apathetic. I don't care. It's too much for me to handle. I don't want to jump in. There's no hope here. No, he saw our brokenness and entered into it with the hope For redemption and goes to the cross for our sin and for our brokenness to redeem us to God. So we as Christians should be the first people to see brokenness and enter into it with the hope of redemption. That's what the gospel means. That's what the gospel calls for. If anyone can have hope that God can make broken things new, it should be the church. Right? If anyone can have hope that God uses broken, messed up things and broken, messed up people to bring about common good, it should be the church. So, we can be hopeful. We can engage and we can pray as we're told to do in Jeremiah 29 7, and we can seek the good. That's one group. One group in our church, I think we need to learn to care. But for a whole other group of us, I think we care way too much. Let me talk to you for a second. For some of us, politics have become kind of our everything. Right, so, they're, they're where we found our group identity. I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, this is who I am. They're where we've found our common enemy. They define where we draw the line between good person and bad person. Politics is what we use to label and judge and condemn you. You can't be a Christian and Republican, right? Because Republicans don't care about the poor and Trump is evil, right? Or you can't be a Christian and be Democrat because Democrats don't care about life. And really, they're just a bunch of communists. Right there, where we draw our line in the sand. It's where we find all of our meaning and identity. It's where we say bad person, good person with me, not with me, friend, enemy. If I can just take a second to give you a pastoral word of rebuke this morning. I have been so incredibly saddened by how some of you have acted when it comes to politics over the past few months. We're in the middle of everyone else being divisive and everyone else yelling. You've taken to your Instagrams and your Facebooks and you've shouted and put on blast your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of with grace and maturity saying, you know, our unity in Christ is more important than me blasting folks on Instagram or shouting into my echo chamber right now. So maybe I should have a respectful, peaceful, unity-seeking conversation with my brother or sister in Christ instead. Instead of doing that, you've been the first to throw stones. You've gotten up on your high horse you've looked down your nose thinking, why isn't everyone as smart as I am? When my viewpoint here is so clearly correct. Listen, you're just like the Pharisee in Luke 18. where that Jesus says, goes into the temple and he stands up in front of everyone. And he prays, God, thank you that I'm not like them. Thank you that I'm not like the sinner, like the tax collector. We pray the same prayer. Instead, we say, God, thank you that I'm not like them, like the Republican or the Democrat. Thank you that I'm so much more enlightened and more woke than they are. I want you to hear me. You haven't followed the way of Jesus. You haven't given yourselves over to things of the spirit, like humility and kindness and patience and love. You care more about your party or your political position, or your candidate than you do Christian unity within our church family. And that is divisive and it needs to stop now. You've sought the things of the world. You've elevated your political position over peace among the church. And one, one easy way for you to stop this is drop the, drop the overstatements right? Stop saying blanket statements. Listen, the overwhelming majority of folks are not trying to do pure evil and ruin everyone's lives, right? There's the 1% for sure. And we're going to hear about them because of the way our media works, but the 99% plus are genuinely trying to seek to do what they believe is right and good and lead to flourishing. So stop with the demonization of the other. Learn to seek peace in unity, Let's look at what Jesus says to those of us who elevate politics over everything. Mark 12, we're going to look at 13 through 17. they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So this verse is often used to separate out church and state right? To argue that Jesus puts up a line and says, okay, these things are Caesar's. These are the things that belong to the political side of our lives, to the government. And these things are God's separate out church and state, but that's not actually what Jesus is talking about here, right? So notice the question he asks in verse 16, he holds up the coin and he says, whose likeness or inscription is this, AKA whose image is on this. And he says that because the coin has Caesar's image, give it to Caesar's. But then he says that we should give to God what is God. So that of course raises the question, what has God's image on it? Well, according to Genesis two, we do, right? Our very lives do as in all of our lives and everything in them. So I don't think Jesus's point here is that we should give to the public civic parts of our lives to Caesar, to the government and the private spiritual things in our lives to God. Rather, Jesus's point is that we should give all of our lives, everything about us, including politics over to God. It all belongs to him because we have God's image stamped on us. We first and foremost, give our allegiance to him as followers of Christ. We are dual citizens, but our primary worship, our primary allegiance, our primary uh, devotion, goes to Jesus. And he is where we get our primary identity, not politics. So what do we do? right regardless of where you find yourself if you're over here struggling to fight against your apathy tempted to not care about politics or whether you're over here where politics is everything it's what you find your identity in what you draw the line in where you build your community what do we do pick up in Jeremiah 29 verse 10 for thus says the Lord when 70 years are completed for Babylon I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, which hopefully in context, you see, this has nothing to do with you getting your dream career or your dream job or your dream spouse or anything to do with your individual calling. He's actually talking about bringing his people out of exile. Another sermon for another day, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in to exile. God tells the Israelites, I'm the Lord. And one day this exile is going to end and I'm going to restore you to your home, to your place. But while you're in exile, while you're in Babylon, while you're in this place that is not your home, seek the good. Seek flourishing, seek shalom, pray and work for the place where you find yourself. And also remember, there's going to come a day where I come and take you back to your true home. What a beautiful foreshadowing of that, which is promised to the church of Jesus. It's where we are right now, living as dual citizens, living as exiles, but this won't last forever. And one day Christ is going to return and he's going to bring us home to his forever Kingdom. So as we approach politics, here's what we need to remember important but temporary. Important but temporary. Important, absolutely needed, essential, necessary in our society with how it's built to seek and, and learn and go for the common good and temporary. Christ's kingdom is what lasts forever. Important but temporary. So let me end by giving us two applications. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you what to do on Tuesday, any of that. But I just want to give you two charges from scripture as we close. Number one, have peace. Have peace. So much of what drives our hatred for the other, our ostracizing, our demonizing, our frustration and canceling is fear. Right, I don't want to live in America if so and so is in office. Haven't you heard his policy on blank? Do you see who's backing him? He won't concede. Did you see what he tweeted the other day, et cetera, et cetera? So much fear and doubt and worry, and that is not the way of Jesus. Listen to me, God is sovereign and his kingdom is much bigger than America. So ask yourself the question, what does your fear about what happens on Tuesday say about who you really think is on the throne of the universe? What is does your fear about who wins on Tuesday say about who you think is on the throne of the universe? God is still God, regardless of who gets elected as president. He's been God from eternity past. He will be God for eternity future. So we have the charge as Christians to live in the way of Jesus and stop freaking out over the next four years. God is God. But Tim, you don't, you don't understand If this person gets elected. This is going to happen. Okay. That's hard. And God is God. Yeah. But Tim, you don't understand it. If this person gets elected, everyone's going to see all the evangelicals that voted for him. And it's just going to put such a bad reputation on God. Okay. God is God. Yeah. But Tim, if this person wins and we're going to experience such deep persecution and we're going to be pushed out of a place of power in our society, and I don't know how we're going to function. If we're going to be okay. Okay. God is God all throughout Jeremiah 29, over and over and over again, God keeps referring him to himself as the Lord. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I think in some ways reminding the Israelites, hey, don't forget, I'm in charge. And I know this situation looks bleak and it looks uncertain and it seems unhopeful, but don't forget, I am the Lord. I'm gonna get the glory here. I'm not freaking out. I'm not shaking in my God-sized boots. I'm not uncertain about what is going to happen. I am in charge. I am the Lord and I am working all things out for my glory. I'm God. Listen to me, have peace. Don't let who wins or doesn't win on Tuesday be the ground you stand on. Let God be the rock. He's still going to be God. He's going to be God on Tuesday. He's going to be God four years from now. He's going to be God eight years from now and so on and so forth. He is the one that reigns forever. And so we can have peace regardless of who's in the White House. That's the first one have peace. Number two, seek unity in humility, seek unity in humility. There's Christian freedom, biblically, this election cycle to vote according to the Holy spirit and your conscience, right? So some godly, faithful, biblically minded men and women are going to vote for Trump. And some godly, faithful, biblically minded men and women are going to vote for Biden and some godly, faithful, biblically minded men and women are going to vote third party or abstain. There's freedom here in Christ to vote according to your conscience. What there's not freedom to do is to decide whether or not you're committed to Christian unity. That's a command from scripture. That's a non-negotiable for the people of God. Division has no place in the broader church and in our local church family. And as your pastor, I'm actually way less concerned with how you vote or who you vote for this week. And I'm way more concerned with how you treat the people in our church family who vote differently than you. I'm way more committed to what I see the call is in scripture, which is to seek unity, right? That they, they will know, the watching world will know that we are Christians by how we love one another, by how we're unified in the spirit, this unity that was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus, His blood that reconciles us, not only to God, but also to one another. I'm way more concerned about that unity this week than I am about what you do when you go to the polls. What that means, easy application for some of us this week, we need to sit down in humility with someone in our community group who we know thinks politically differently than us or votes differently than us. And we just need to ask some questions. We need to have some civil conversation. We need to go and approach them in humility, seeking unity. And we need to ask some things like, hey, will you tell me why you approach this issue this way? Hey, will you tell me how you're thinking about that and why you lean that way? Will Will you help me understand why you're voting for them? We need to ask questions like, hey, how are you afraid to respond or engage with me because of how I've talked about this in the past? Maybe some of us, we need to ask, hey, how do you experience my online presence when it comes to this? Do I come across as hateful and divisive? And in unity, we need to seek to ask questions and to learn. For for some of us, we need to show up to community group this week and we need to be committed to humility and unity. So all of our groups will either be meeting on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night. So for some of us, we're going to be meeting as we're getting election results. Others of us, we're going to be meeting the next day or the day after that. So a large chunk of us are going to meet knowing who's going to be in the White House for the next four years. And you need to know it is not your job to go into group ready to convince everyone why this is the best day ever or the worst week of your life. Instead, you need to go in with humility and with grace, ready to ask questions and ready to seek the unity and the peace of your group and our church family. You need to commit to unity in your group over fear or pride. Listen to me, Christian unity is a non-negotiable for the people of God. It's commanded all throughout the scriptures to love one another, to have peace with one another, to be reconciled together. Command here, politics, important, but temporary. God cares most about his kingdom because his kingdom is what lasts forever. America, important, but temporary. The world, important, but temporary. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And one day King Jesus will return and he'll make all things new and he'll reign and rule forever. And our entrance into that forever kingdom won't be based upon who we did or did not vote for won't be based upon our political party affiliation. It won't be based upon how you cast your vote on Tuesday. Those things matter and they're important. And we engage as dual citizens. We engage as exiles seeking the common good. And we await a true and better kingdom. And So if you're in Christ, your hope is not in Trump. It's in Jesus. Your hope is not in Biden. It's in Jesus. Your hope is not in America. It's in Jesus. Your hope is in the God of the universe who over 2000 years ago came and took on flesh and lived a perfect life as a first century Jewish man and yet died on the cross for your sins. He is where your hope is found, not in whoever gets elected. Let me leave you with a quote that I thought was so helpful with all of this by a guy named Brett McCracken. And this is what he said. He said, God's agenda is better, bigger, and more glorious than any one party party nation, culture, or time. The mission of Jesus will outlast every White House tenure. It will outlast America itself. So for the Christian, the right side of history is always the side that places faithfulness to the eternal God above loyalty to a temporal tribe. God's doing something bigger. He's doing something more and his kingdom is where we find our everlasting hope. And so we can engage in what's important, knowing that it's temporary let's pray together. God, thank you that you are God that you're in charge, that you're king, that you're Lord. And that's been true forever. And it's going to continue to be true even past this Tuesday. And so I pray that we will be a people that root ourselves in you, that that ground ourselves in your truth and the reality that you are sovereign and you are in control. And we'll be a people that seek peace and unity and humility in the coming week, in the coming months. As everybody else in our nation seems like they want to throw stones and yell and freak out. God, would you help us be a church and a people that are rooted and established in love for you in receiving your love for us and in love for one another. We need you in this. God, we need you so much. We need your spirit to pour out in a supernatural way upon our church that we can be rooted and established in you. Your love for us. We love you. Proly sings in Jesus' name. Amen.